Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nation's oldest public affairs discussion forum. I'm Dr. Ann W. Smith, co-chair of the Arts Forum and your organizer for this program. We would love to all be in the Remby Rock Auditorium with you, but circumstances dictate that today's program is virtual rather than in person as originally scheduled. Also, you can let your friends and supporters know they can listen to this program in a few days on the website's recordings podcast section. I'll repeat that at the end. Our topic for today, Behold, the performing arts prevail. And I think you will agree at the end. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our speakers from the San Francisco Bay Area art scene. Philippa Cole from San Francisco Symphony. She was previously the Associate Director of Artistic Planning for Los Angeles Philharmonic producing director at London's Almeida Theater, casting administrator at the English National Opera, agent with Asconus Halt, artist management company, focusing on conductors like, oh, Michael Tilson Thomas and um, Sir Simon Rattle. She served also as the center's performing panel chair at the Royal Academy of Music in London. Karma Zisman, <clears throat> before taping the helmet ODCs five years ago, Karma served as Director of Institutional Advancement at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Previously, she was Vice President of Development at the World Affairs Council of Northern California and Development Director of the College of Liberal Arts at, at uh, San Francisco State University. Sean Fenton has been active in the professional Bay Area theater community for more than two decades. He's worked as an actor, musician, director, and administrator, performed at Theater Works, Silicon Valley, San Francisco Playhouse, Crowded Fire Theater, 42nd Street Moon, and Ferocious Lotus Theater, among others. Backstage, he's been a leader at Kaiser Permanente Educational Theater and developed audience research services at Wolf Brown's Intrinsic Impact Program. I'm Ann W. Smith, again, the, the Arts Forum uh, co-chair for the Cal Commonwealth Club of California. I'm a longtime arts executive at university professor and nonprofit volunteer. Um, I continue to teach arts and culture subjects online, and I mentor graduate students. Um, on their thesis and dissertation. Currently, I'm the board president for Theater Bay Area and a board member of Medical Clown Project, the Fountain Project Foundation, and sometimes a local, state, or federal arts grants panelist. Uh, Fine Press Book Arts, Equity, Diversity, and Access Projects, and Qigong are my primary ongoing avocational interests. Oh, and of course, going to live performances and baseball. I'm moderating the panel today relative to the restorative performing arts ideas and values, lingering pandemic issues, and new implications for artists and audiences. I'm certain the artists are leading the way in 2022 for the world. I personally am very active, vaccinated, triple boosted and masked, going out and about. Others of all ages and circumstances are very reluctant and not going out at all, regardless of masks or vaccination status. It's a dilemma we find ourselves in so now we'll, we'll go to the, the discussion itself. Panelists, feel free to, to uh, ask questions as uh, each other finishes the presentation. And uh, 
and ask questions as you present. Ask each of us if you have a question you want need us to answer while you're talking. I'll be asking questions um, relating to deal, dealing with or without a live audience, um, dealing with or without video and film, what's working, what's going away, what's staying, what's coming back. <laughs> Can hybrid really work? What's the value of being in the San Francisco Bay Area? And what will the performing arts world and its audiences be like in five years? Um, so we have about an hour. Let's get started. In the, our, our order of presentation, I'm going to ask Philippa to go first. Philippa is the Senior Director for Artistic Planning at our very own world-class San Francisco Symphony. She shares with us the emerging impact of music director Esapekka Salonen's Sparks of Innovation underneath his galvanizing leadership model of the collaborating artists. Well, thank you, Anne. Nice to be here. Good afternoon, um, everybody. It's great to be with you. So I'll start just with a little bit of history of the symphony and what we're up to and what we've been doing since the pandemic and how the pandemic affected us, of course, um, and how it works with our collaborative partners, as Anne just mentioned. Um, so the San Francisco Symphony, um, founded a long time ago now, back in 1911, um, internationally acknowledged to be one of the major symphony orchestras of the world, 52-week a year orchestra. Um, after an amazing 25-year tenure, Michael Tilson Thomas, our previous music director, stepped down at the end of the 1920 season, um, a beloved figure in this city to this day still. Um, and from the start of the 2021 season, we welcomed our current music director, uh, the Finnish conductor, composer, Esapekka Salonen. Um, also at that time, we welcomed eight collaborative partners, more of which I will come to actually uh, towards the end of my presentation. But but we asked them to join us uh, to work alongside Esapekka and the organization as a whole to help us shape and guide the direction of the symphony orchestra. Um, our orchestra is made up of just over 100 people, uh, 100 musicians. The administration and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus, um, there's a combination of both professional and volunteer singers, um, are similarly around the 100 mark each. We have a very well-renowned youth orchestra founded almost 40 years ago, if not more than 40 years ago, which provides music training for some of the most gifted young musicians in the Bay Area and is extremely active with weekly rehearsals and a number of concerts throughout the year. The San Francisco Symphony presents more than 220 concerts and presentations annually for an audience of nearly 450,000, both here in our home at Davies Symphony Hall, where I'm speaking to you from today, and, and also through our national and international touring. We are one of the busiest orchestras in, in North America. A cornerstone of our organization's mission is education. And the education programs that we offer are really one of the most extensive given by any American orchestra today. We provide free comprehensive music education to every first through fifth grade student in SF public schools. And we serve more than 75,000 children, students, educators, and families annually. Innovation has always been a central theme um, of the work that we do here and part of our artistic vision and programming initiatives. Um, back in 2001, um, the uh, San Francisco Symphony became the first American orchestra to launch its own in-house record label, um, SFS Media, uh, recording live in concert and engineered here in the hall. SFS Media recordings showcase music by American composers as well as core classical masterworks uh, reflected of the symphony's broad range of programs. Um, our radio broadcasts, uh, first in the nation to feature symphonic music when they began back in 1926, today carry the orchestra's concerts across the country. Um, and in 2004, the symphony launched the groundbreaking multimedia Keeping Score series on PBS television and, and the web. And for those of you who haven't seen those, they're fantastic in-depth programs about music, musicians and composers led by Michael Tilson Thomas. Um, really, really innovative. And the series was made available uh, for unlimited free streaming um, in 2020. 2014, San Francisco Symphony inaugurated Soundbox, 
uh, an experimental and eclectic live music series which takes place in an alternative performance space located backstage at Davies Symphony Hall. We do four of these programs each year. They're curated by a different person each time from different backgrounds that don't necessarily have had connections with the symphony before and they showcase members of the orchestra in a different way from their usual orchestral performances they're also uh programmed in such a way that they're very thematic they are held late at night there are drinks available it feels like a bar uh feels like a kind of club um and we don't publish the program in advance but yet people still come and they flock to these concerts because they know they're going to hear something interesting, innovative, exciting, uh, and they don't need to know what's on the what's on the program. Um, it's a really in- interesting way of doing things and, and something that we, we hope to explore more of. The type of programs we offer here are incredibly varied. Um, there's what you might describe as the sort of traditional classical music that the orchestra is, of course, widely known for. Um, the, you know, the, the, the Bach, the Brahms, the Beethoven, all those things that you know you you might associate with a classical symphony orchestra. Um, the subscription series, you know, often held up to be the beacon um, of artistic planning. Not necessarily the case really in today's world, but but. Uh, you know, often traditionally known that way. Um, but even within that series, the kind of programming that we are presenting varies really widely from week to week. Um, it can be a brand new piece by a, a, a living composer written just last week um, with a with a piece that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, um, a completely different genre, completely different geographical country. Uh, you know, it just really is very eclectic. But in addition to those traditional subscription programs, we offer a number of different kind of strands of programming. Um, community programs remain very important for us, both here inside the hall at Davies, concerts like our Deck the Hall for Families that we do in the holidays, the Lunar New Year concert each year, the annual Dia de los Muertos concert, also taking musicians of the symphony out into the community, including a partnership with UCSF. In education, we're putting on music for families, concerts for kids and other events at the hall in addition to what we're doing at the schools. We do a number of films with live orchestra, a very popular series that has grown and grown over the years and something that we're looking to expand. Um, a chamber music series uh, curated specifically by our musicians. Uh, a recital series, visiting recitals, uh, visiting guest artists, um, visiting orchestras from other parts of the world. Um, the experimental sandbox series that I mentioned holiday programming, which tends to be a little bit more pop-focused sometimes, and similarly last summer programming, which is a mixture of pop programming, lighter classics. This year we have, you know, Airborne Toxic, Bernadette Peters, Pink Martini, alongside the kind of traditional classical concerts. So there's a lot going on here at the Hall. When the pandemic happened in March 2020, we, we turned to digital programming like everybody. And we launched a new platform, San Francisco Symphony Plus. Um, it was it was a it was a creative time. It was a very testing time, um, but it, it, it made us all think outside the box. The strict city rules that we had to adhere by um, meant that for almost a year, we could not have more than 12 people in a room to record anything. So Anything that we wanted to do with wind and brass players as as well, we had to record in isolation and add those on afterwards. We couldn't have anybody in a room together who couldn't wear a mask. Um, You can imagine going from 100 people in a symphony orchestra where they're, you know, cheek by jowl on the stage day in, day out, to suddenly having to be isolated and not perform um, was a very uh, weird time for the organization. We started a little series of one-on-one concerts where one member of the orchestra played to one member of the public and we had them held outside on the terrace. They were incredibly moving concerts. They were half an hour each, six, seven, eight hundred people uh, signed up to do them. We we did them for, for community leaders. We did them for members of the public. We did them for our board, you know, and every music uh, musician in the orchestra wanted to get involved. Um, and it was a very, very... Uh, emotional way hearing live music again for the first time even in that tiny little format was really a kind of thrilling breakthrough moment for us all one other thing that happened during the pandemic is the kind of collaboration with the with other arts folks within the bay area you know we we believe that a a symphony orchestra lives and thrives in constant dialogue uh with the community and the broader world it has to it has to move with the times um and it has to be uh 
listening and responding to what is happening within the community. And, you know, playing a vital role in forging connections and bringing people together is also a role that we, we have here um, in running this orchestra. And we, we took this period of time during the pandemic um, to to be a real opportunity to collaborate more with other musicians and organizations within the Bay Area and to look at those musical genres that are really prevalent here in this Bay Area, but not necessarily genres of music that we are typically known for. Um, and so one of the things we did was we created a series and we launched a digital series called Currents. And we made these 20 to 25 minute uh, episodes um, about Indian classical music, American Indian classical music, Zimbabwean, Persian, hip hop, Chinese, klezmer, you know, each time collaborating with local artists who are experts in their fields and finding new and creative ways with working with them and members of the symphony orchestra. And in, in nearly each case, we had not had any collaboration with any of these people before. And it was an absolutely wonderful, informative uh, time for us all. It created a lot of new relationships that still live on now. And it just really opened everybody's eyes. And uh, it was a really, really magical time for us. Moving back into live performance was an interesting process and continues to be an interesting process, building back the audience, um, working out what what worked, what we wanted to change from the, you know, having gone through the pandemic, what we, what would sort of still be the same. And, you know, that is still very much work in progress. But like a lot of organizations, we, we had to start small. We had small orchestras to begin with, you know, with just strings only, 12 feet apart. You know, the maximum we could fit on the stage was about 24 people. We had short concerts. Um, we had no intermissions. We had small amounts of people allowed within the hall. Um, but we gradually built back up. Um, but we're still very much in that process. And I know that that's something that will come up, I'm sure, with my other panelists later, you know, just building back those audiences and, and, uh, and finding a way for people to be happy and safe to return to the hall. We opened this current season that we're in uh, back in early October with a collaboration with Alonzo King Lines Ballet, um, a few members of whom we had uh, worked with during the pandemic for the first time um, and have worked with since our gala too. And that is just an example of, of, um, of a local company that we have been working with, that we started during the pandemic, that we have continued this collaboration week with. We're back to performing each week uh, with a regular amount of musicians on the stage. Um, it's not been without drama. COVID still causes us numerous hurdles. Uh, you know, musicians testing positive, staff testing positive, people not being allowed into the country, still problems with visas. You know, those those things have not completely disappeared and we, we deal with them on a day-to-day -day basis. One thing that has certainly shifted in the orchestra's makeup uh, particularly over the last season and actually since the pandemic is is what you hear and who you hear and who you see on the stage. The orchestra's continued work around diversity, equality and inclusion is, is clearly visible to see and to hear, um, expanding our repertoire so that we are not just performing those quote unquote masterworks by composers of hundreds of years ago is, is really important to us. Um, Essa Pekka, talks about us having the duties of a gardener when it comes to repertoire in that both the old trees and the new trees need each other uh, to help fertilize and to help grow. Um, and, I, and I truly believe that that is the case. You know, our belief is that we should be exhaustive with the voices that we are hearing and seeing on the stage. On a related subject, actually, the, the commissioning of, of new work is very much at the forefront of Essa Pekka's vision for the organization. Um, we aim to grow the canon through commissioning a body of new work from today's most creative minds. And whilst it's really important for us that we are embracing the richness um, of the composition talent here in the Bay Area, which there is very much uh, a huge, huge amount of, of, of talent there. We, we also wish to um, for this to be a global undertaking so that our musicians and our audiences are exposed to, to every voice from different parts of the world, different backgrounds, different genres, different musical voices. So going forward, um, our live performance certainly is at the forefront and the bulk of our work. Um, we have continued, though, to explore our digital output. Um, for us at the SFS, uh, that really means looking at things that are sort of bespoke digitally, um, digitally digital native, not, not necessarily live streaming orchestral performances, which, 
you know, there's there's a lot of that going on. Um, I think there's a lot of Zoom fatigue in that way, um, and it's it's not it's not the same. Um, and that is not something that has been uh, of huge interest to us. It's more uh, interested. We're more interested in expanding the possibilities um, of the orchestral experience through digital collab- collaboration. And you know, one of the things we just did recently was we we launched and we produced an hour long concert film of Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale with members of our orchestra an actor, a dancer from Alonzo King Lines Ballet, um, a, a videographer, director, designer, Essa Pekka conducting. Um, and that is something that, you know, that is complementary to some of our programming that's live in the hall. And, you know, we're looking at ways that we can really sort of thematically link up. Uh, so, you know, what you might see in a chamber music concert, what you might hear in a chamber music concert might be related to that week's subscription planning, which might be related to something that we're putting or we're making digitally online. Um, you know, we we live in this city of innovation, of technology, um, and, you know, there's a lot to explore there in, in music and how that, that might impact each other. So before I um, hand this back over to Anna and answer questions for my my panelists, I did want to circle actually back to the collaborative partners, because I know that a lot of people sort of wonder how this works. Um, You know, how did we choose them? Why did we choose them? What do they do? Are they just artists in residence? Um, So as I mentioned at the start of the 2021 season, we invited eight people, eight people to be collaborative partners, and they're from a variety of cultural disciplines. Um, and effectively, they're a sort of think tank. Um, and just for, for those who are not aware, that the collaborative partners, they're, they're Nick, Nicholas Brattel, the film composer. Um, for those of you who watch Succession, you can hear his music very clearly and beautifully uh, for that. Julia Bullock, who's a soprano. Um, uh, Claire Chase, who founded the International Contemporary Ensemble, is also a very talented flute player. Bryce Desner, who is a composer and also um, a member of the band The National. Um, Pekka Casisto, a Finnish uh, composer, uh, sorry, conductor and a violinist. Uh, Nico Muli, a composer. Um, Carol Wiley, uh, an AI roboticist based here in the Bay Area. Um, and the jazz singer and bassist Esperanza Spalding. And this group of visionary artists and thinkers have, have been deployed in very many different ways here at the symphony. There is the obvious and easy approach um, of them being kind of artists in residence, um, you know, working as individual artists with the symphony, whether that be performing as a soloist on a subscription program or curating a sound box or composing a new commission. That has certainly happened. Um, But it's not all about them performing in a concert. You know, there is the more uh, unique approach of them being part of the strategic vision um, of the organization. You know, they are they are not in leadership team meetings every Monday. They are not deciding, you know, what happens to the finances necessarily, anything like that. But there are regular meetings, all of them as a group together uh, with Esapeka, too. uh, and sometimes just a subset of them, um, looking at institutional priorities, whether that be audience development, whether that be education, um, the facilities, the building, the concert experience and so forth, how we should market, how we should you know, be connecting with, with today's audiences, how we should be growing our audiences. And then there's also the connections they bring. Um, they help us expand our reach and our vision. Um, and then there's also the individual participation from some of them in specific areas that interest them. A couple of them, for example, are very active as part of our DEI work here. They're part of the work group. They attend meetings. They, you know, collaborate with the musicians and with the staff and that. Others are interested in work we're doing with the community and so forth. So that is really how the the collaborative partners uh, are working here. And we we go into our third season with them um, in September. Uh, So I think for the sake of time, I better hand this back to you, Anne. Sure, and, and I'll pass the um, the baton along to uh, Karma. And and I've got a couple of questions, but we'll weave them back at the end. And uh, so, uh, from a symphony of a hundred musicians to a dance company of ten dancers, well, that's a switch. Eleven right now. Eleven, <laughs> yay! We're getting there. We're getting bigger. Getting well. Uh, great. I'm going to keep this fairly short so that we can move on to you, Sean, and, we'll, and then we can make time for, for additional questions. So let me give you a really short summary of just who, who is, OD, what is an ODC? Who are we? What, what's been the, the big 
highlight since uh, since our world's all changed. Um, so ODC is a, a contemporary dance company, but that's an oversimplification. We're also a center for creative movement. We were founded as a collective in 1971 by our founding artistic director, Brenda Way, who we have the incredible luxury of still having at our helm um, alongside me. And that's a gift. Um, but we are very much, uh, we, we have deep collective genes. And I think in these moments of folks starting to talk again about um, co-leadership, shared leadership, multi-voiced um, curatorial practice, multi-voiced leadership, there's something wonderful about belonging to an organization that actually began as 16 people getting on a school bus in Ohio and literally coming to San Francisco to, to work it out, to decide what it, what it would mean and, and what could be accomplished um, as a collective. And since those very beginning moments, um, ODC has been more than a professional dance company. Of course, that's key and central to our artistic life, that artistically rigorous body who are, you know, really charged with um, realizing that sort of that top uh, expression of what the genre is capable of, um, but also at the heart of the constellation of programs at ODC um, is a school. And we truly believe that if you can move, you can dance. And ODC's, um, one of our primary sort of foundational intentions is to be welcoming of all bodies, all abilities, all ages. We've actually started in, in complement to almost 200 classes a week pre-COVID in as many genres as you can possibly imagine. During COVID, we actually added a fitness program and a lot of people were asking us, why in the world would you get into such a crowded space? Um, we actually felt that it was really important to open the door for folks who wanted that physical confidence, wanted to discover their own creativity, wanted a, a path or a doorway to come into the experience of movement and creativity through movement, but don't think of themselves as dancers, don't self-identify as dancers, and we're maybe intimidated by that label, and we just want to do everything we can to get those doors open so that as many folks as possible can walk in and start to discover what is, what is that? What does it mean to move in a supportive um, environment where you're, you're being invited to try all sorts of different types of gesture? So we're a professional dance company of 11. We're a school that had 16,000 students pre-COVID. Um, we're, we're nowhere near that number right now in person, but we are hitting numbers close to that um, through hybrid offerings. I'll get to that in a second. We're also a presenting theater. And for us, for ODC, for a number of years, we had a single curator, a wonderful theater director for many years um, named Julie Potter was really at the helm of the theater. And even before COVID and, and some of the deep questions that we've all been invited to start examining in our practices and in our lives, we really started to ask ourselves, how can the theater be um, a more dynamic instrument of equity? And not so then that means all sorts of things to us. It means um, who are the artists we're presenting, but it also means are we saying that someone must be based in the Bay Area to come in and work in our space, or will we allow folks from outside the area? Um, how rigid are we or not going to be about our definition of contemporary dance? Um, you know, are we willing to be more porous? Are we willing to incorporate other types of movement or even other types of performance? And and as we were um, starting into the pandemic, Julie Potter got her dream job in Europe, which is great. No one no one wanted her to leave, but but then she got this incredible sort of fairy tale um, life redo in Europe. Um, and at that moment, realized we had a great opportunity to expand how we programmed the theater. And in Chloe Zimberg, our, our theater creative director, we found someone, and we like to use this phrase, who could hold the canoe steady, if you will. She could, she could hold the, the systems and the infrastructure of the theater steady, and we could open up who curates how could we get to a multiplicity of voice by inviting a whole host of guest curators from across our community to begin to say, 
I think we really need to invite these folks onto the stage. What would happen if we asked this many artists, what would they do if they got a chance to have the stage? What's holding them back? What do they need in order to come into our theater space? So the theater, um, probably more than any other aspect of our program, remains a presenting theater, but that's about the only thing um, that is static. Everything else has really shifted about just how wide open we are. Um, and we just came through the State of Play Festival, which was an incredible realization of Amara Tabor-Smith and Charlie Slender White's um, guest curation of, of this first experiment. Um, finally, we're also really concerned with health and well-being. And so we have a whole division of our programs that ladder under the umbrella of health. Um, we have very robust senior programs that are not just, um, they're not just for dance specifically. There's also a lot of just bridging social distance and what does someone need to have access to um, meaningful, active, feisty, great community, whether you want to go see a show together or, um, or take a class together. Um, we have an incredible senior top and a senior hula program that have been going for many years. Um, but those programs have, have legs and arms and you know all sorts of dynamic activities of their own that spread out. Um, we also, many people don't know, we have Healthy Dancers Clinic. That is a uh, diagnostic educational resource. It's fee-free. All of the medical practitioners and other practitioners who come and work with us um, are volunteer. And it's really, um, we recognize that a lot of dancers, a lot of artists are underinsured or inhibited about asking about a potential injury or asking about how to do something or how not to do something. Um, as we all know, unlike athletics, the arts are slightly less under, they're slightly less resourced than some of our athletic um, colleagues and peers. And so where there are pretty robust treatment programs for a lot of athletes, a dancer who's injured may feel like they're actually risking the end of a career without support. Um, so it's really important to us to be offering that resource, to be engaging that way with our community. Um, prior to COVID, we we're you know we exist to help people move in person, <laughs> live in person, and usually really up close. Um, and you know nothing like nothing like this these last few years to really um, prompt all of us to start imagining and start listening hard. Um, and I feel like this is now true on so many layers. It's sort of extraordinary. What do our communities need? What do our artists need? What do our audiences need? Mm -hmm. Are they are there people missing who should be in all of those categories? What do they need? What do they need to come in? What are how in line or not in line are we with the things that we aspire to be, and with the services that we in, we aspire to um, make possible and empower for for artists and for community members? And I'm just struck in moments like this where we get a chance to come back and reflect um, how. Yeah, challenge. Of course, there's challenge. Did I get into arts administration to be a public health expert? No, I did not. <laughs> did, did I want to know everything there would ever be about all of the nuances about, you know, when to test and how to test and when to mask and um, how to how to do film set protocol? No, I didn't know I was going to know all of that or any of that. Um, but but really, the challenges are the challenges are significant, and we're all dealing with it. Everyone's dealing, everybody listening to this uh, broadcast or participating is dealing with it. But I feel like we were given more opportunity. And that is actually where, where I think we've spent a lot of our time at ODC. We're a staff of about 40 folks on administrative and, and sort of full-time art making side. Um, if you expand out and look at who's in our faculty roster, we're an organization of almost 200 Mm -hmm. um, we long before AB5, we made the choice to make um, our faculty and our dancers employees. We have almost no contractors at ODC. Um, we felt that that was a really important step forward. Again, even before AB5 came, came into being, one of the great opportunities and challenges we were really made aware of as we stepped into this was great. You know, we were patting ourselves on the back for keeping a lot of our folks working and and yet we couldn't keep our dancers working and we couldn't keep our faculty working at the very first piece of this. We realized right away 
as a as an organization that exists to convene in-person activity, um, we realized that we had a really profound opportunity to think about relationship to digital. And we realized right away that if we did it right, um, digital could be interactive, it could be long-term, it could be boundary expanding, it could be restriction lifting, um, it could help us um, make more opportunity for artists, it could help us welcome more people. Um, essentially, you know, whether we're in person now or whether we're online, we're always thinking about how can we be world-class and approachable. And those those dual prime directives, right, are, are it's a great tension to live in because it, it it makes um, it makes every day be creative. Um, we were looking around in the early early days. In those first couple of weeks, we'd been two weeks away from our big gala and our our dance downtown series at YBCA. That was obviously put on pause, and we realized um, let's think about who else is really hurting in this moment. And a lot of hospitality partners whom with whom we'd worked were really hurting, and so we launched drinks and dance. Um, we showed archival footage of work that we had captured in the past, but we also went out to a bunch of the wineries or um, Stuckey's Club Modern places that had supported us in the past. And we said, will you do a virtual cocktail lesson with us? And so we'll all have a drink together and we'll, and then we'll get to watch them dance together. And Zoom was clunky and now maybe there is some fatigue, but we loved that it allowed an intimacy and an opportunity to ask real-time questions of each other and for everyone to literally have a front row seat, front box seat, um, so that we could make work together. We could make conversation, we can make work. That has since uh, developed into pretty sophisticated hybrid opportunities to take dance class. Um, most of what we do now, we have a digital subscription series that's ongoing called Connect, digital platform, I should say. Um, you can do a month, a single rental, ongoing, whatever you choose. Um, and this ability of, of digital and hybrid has really helped us to um, welcome so many folks who've moved out of the Bay Area during this pandemic and even before, but I, but I think we've all seen how accelerated it's been through the pandemic. And, and there used to be a little bit of a stigma about once you've moved out of the barrier, you can't come back. It's too hard to come back. Um, we're liking to think that we're finding a way to open another door and say to folks, of course, if you're nostalgic, if you're homesick, if you want to have a conversation with this important center of creativity and dance, please come on in. It doesn't matter if you're in Helsinki or in Dubai or in Tokyo, as long as we can figure out the time zones, um, you know, you can be in Chicago or you can be in the East Bay and and it's all good. We can still gather together, um, sparked by this sense of, of equity when it comes to artists and access to work. Um, we've also really, we've really doubled down on what can we do to get subsidized space out to folks in our community. Art making space does not come cheap and it doesn't come easy. And many, many folks in these past two and a half years have faced a, a really triple or quadruple challenge about gathering resource together to make work. And that really that first few months of knowing that we had to lay off our dancers, um, that just didn't, it just, we couldn't sleep. That, that, you know, that's partly who we exist with and, yeah. and for and because of. And so um, this year we were able to offer our dancers full-time 52 week, no breaks contract as employees, um, as exempt employees with benefits, with vacation. Um, and it's a, it's a step that shouldn't be radical. You know, I love that people Isn't think that's impressive, <laughs> but it shouldn't be impressive. It should be totally run of the mill. And I can't wait until it is. Um, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to let us move on, but I'm happy to answer questions about all these directions that I've sort of touched on. Well, just that, that single thing of the focus of making it work for the professional artists and the, 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 the apparently radical step of offering full-time employment. I mean, that's what, that's what symphonies do. <laughs> that's not what union I'm yet. That's what, you know, uh, unionized um, artistic groups do. But a modern, a contemporary dance group, that kind of commitment means that you must have found the money. <laughs> we'll get back to that. <laughs> um, and and uh, it, it's it's I find it just a totally radical, wonderful move, and it's 
I'd like to, I want to know more about how it works with the rest of the dance communities positioning nationwide, if, if you, if you know of any of that. And so I'm going to then get some ideas and thoughts from the new kid on the block, as we say. <laughs> Sean Fenton is on the job less than a week as executive director um, for uh, Theater Bay Area, uh, which is an arts community service organization for about close to 50 years. ODC is now 50 plus. The symphony's well over a hundred. You know, this is this is a very mature leadership here. And uh, so I've asked uh, Sean, he's been around for a while, not in this job necessarily, and we'll get back to you in a couple of years. <laughs> see, see what's really happening with the theater. But wait, what, what, what approaches and ideologies have you been noticing uh, during this time? And, and what do you think the pathways are that you want to work on. First off, um, thank you so much, Anne, for that lovely introduction. And it's so it's such a pleasure to be in conversation with all of you, Karma and Philippa. Karma, your talk also brought back huge memories for me as well. And thinking about how, talking about ODC dance's uh, educational impact. Twenty years ago, I was in a modern dance class uh, at my college with. Brenda Way, and she brought in her, the the whole dance company to put a piece on us, and that was just thinking about the impact for me as a, a young person, a college student, certainly not a dancer. <laughs> I was probably the least experienced dancer in our entire class, but everyone was very patient with me and just learning the the impact or the, the possibilities that I could do with my body in a modern dance class um, that sticks with me even, even now. So that took me back. <laughs> um, and you gave such a great introduction about Theater Bay Area. I don't want to go too much into who we are, but one thing that makes us unique uh, on this panel is that we're not actually a presenting company ourselves. We are a service organization uh, that serves theaters throughout the, the Bay Area, which is about uh, nine to 12 counties, depending on what we're counting, um, about uh, several thousand individual members and a couple hundred company members as well. And we, we serve theater companies, large and small, uh, as well as individual artists in every profession within the theater sector. So we have a pretty wide constituency um, and it's been challenging to meet the needs of everybody in our membership and in our in our community, particularly during, during these pandemic years. Um, for the theater sector, as much as any art form, as, as we've talked about, and, and sometimes, in, if not more so, I, I've, I think that as theater makers have been faced with quite literally an ex existent existential crisis. Um, and it sounds hyperbolic, but it really is quite literal. When we think about the word theater, it is an art form that is definitionally two things, right? Live and in person. So what happens when we take either of those elements away? Is it still theater? Are we suddenly film? Are we suddenly TV? What are we? Um, and this was a question that virtually every theater um, in the world, uh, particularly in the Bay Area, had to grapple with in some capacity, of course. And now more than two years since the pandemic began, um, we're still grappling with it. Uh, and that's really the crux of the matter for me right now. Uh, and it was underscored to me on a call earlier today with San Francisco arts leaders, uh, that while the rest of the world and other industries and the restaurant industry and bars and, and everywhere else, everyone's trying their hardest to move forward and simply move on from the pandemic or pretend that the pandemic is over and have some sense of normalcy. Um, but as we know it here in the performing arts, um, these challenges are persist persisting more than ever, and they're not going away anytime soon. Um, so particularly this big question of how long is it going to be before we have full houses again? And um, what exactly is keeping audience members from coming back? And that's more complex than, than it seems on the surface, right? This was a big topic of conversation on the call this morning, was that it, it it, it could be fear of COVID, right? Or the protocols um, that are too lax. So people are, have, have uh, safety concerns, but it also could be the opposite that others may not want to attend because masking and vaccination protocols are too stringent. So there's this tension there. And in some ways, you know, you, it doesn't matter which way we go. There, there's no easy answer. And the pathway to full houses again seems like such an uphill battle, right? Um, 
back to what I was saying about even what the definition of what theater is, um, one of the big things that many theaters, of course, I think we all know have, have moved to has been expanding alternative formats, right? We're talking Zoom readings. We're talking about um, radio plays um, by companies like the San Francisco Mime Troupe. That's very exciting. And I, I hear that they're continuing that work. Uh, now more and more streamed and pre-recorded broadcasts of theater productions um, that are available alongside live and in-person offerings, right? And yes, these programs, they, they push the very definition of what our art form is and what it can be. And some companies and some artists are going to continue to lean into these alternative forms and some aren't. And there's going to be room for all, all opinions on, on this spectrum. Um, but regardless of how we feel about online theater op options or hybrid theater options, um, there are indisputable benefits, and Karma, I think you really alluded to this in your work as well, um, that namely for access and safety. I mean, we've been able to expand. I've seen theater expanded now to our community members who may have mobility concerns, who have compromised immune systems, or just simply don't feel comfortable to be back in crowds. Um, there's also that potential to expand reach. We no longer have to be in the theater. We can go far beyond the limits of our region. So theater lovers around the globe can now have access to the work that we produce here. So there are some major benefits and possibilities with moving to hybrid and online formats, right? Um, and I, I just think it, as we keep talking about post-pandemic times, we're, we can't even, we're still mid-pandemic. Um, we, st we just have this itch to go into normal land again, but we're, we're really not there yet. Um, so just underscoring that this is a trend that's not going away anytime soon, right? Uh, and some theaters have actually even invested in infrastructure and capital improvements to improve their technology, right? So that online offerings can be more robust, uh, more professionally done, multi-camera setups. Uh, so it's not just a single camera taping a proscenium stage. Um, so a question that I have um, is if this isn't going any away anytime soon, so what can we do to support theaters who are fully embracing online offerings now or hybrid offerings? And this may be as simple as consolidating and publicizing whatever online offerings are available at any given time, because everyone seems to be in their silos. Maybe one role that Theater Bay Area can do is, is help publicize all those offerings in one place so that those who have a desire and appetite for online offerings um, have a place to go and, and see what's available so that we have sort of a whole another uh, menu of viewing options and, you know, an alternative to Netflix so that when I'm at home at Friday night and I don't really want to go out, maybe I turn on you know, what's uh, what's the latest theater production and maybe one I hadn't heard of yet. Um, well, what, regard, yeah. yes, yeah. So what if I do want to go to somewhere? Mm -hmm. how, how, what can theater and music and dance do to make that more more possible for right. me? Right, it's a, there's so many considerations that theaters, yes, um, for, first, I mean, uh, making access and safety a high priority as theaters are already doing. And just like Karma was saying um, that we've all had to become experts <laughs> willingly or not in safety protocols and, and how to make things as safe as possible for audience members who do wish to come out. And that's something that that's one of the other big sets of challenges that theaters are, are definitely grapp grappling with. Um, did want to take a moment, regardless of how we attend theater, whether it is in person or from the comfort of our homes, I did want to just take a moment just to urge all of us and remind myself, as well as everyone on this call, to to give generously. Oftentimes these online programs, it's like a $5 donation button or something. Give more, <laughs> because theaters of all sizes are really struggling. Um, ticket sales are nowhere near pre-pandemic levels. And I think Karma and Philippa probably would agree in your own sectors as well. Right. So if we have the means, please consider giving generously um, as we continue to attend performances, as we stream performances, because all of our companies, they really they need our support. Um, but thinking about those internal challenges that you brought up and um, the, our theaters are, are continuing to face big challenges internally as well. Right. Well, we, anxiety around COVID is not limited to our audience members. Um, as an actor myself, I just finished off a show at San Francisco Playhouse a few months ago. I know um, firsthand the challenges uh, for maintaining safety among a cast and crew of a theatrical production, particularly around shows that um, have big casts. You know, it's it's less of a concern with one man shows or one person shows, but um, 
and big casts in particular, this, this involves rigorous testing protocols. Uh, when you can, employing huge numbers of understudies, when you might not have done that in prior years, um, masking, vaccination, social distancing policies, just even figuring out how a rehearsal can be run or what a safe rehearsal looks like or what a safe performance looks like. And then you add this on top of unprecedented levels of cancellations when even the most robust protocols aren't enough to keep positive cases from emerging in a cast or backstage. So these are just entirely new sets of burdens, financial burdens, artistic burdens for, for companies and theater makers that we just never had to think about or pay for um, three years ago. Um, and again, like even though the rest of the world seems to be moving on or pretending like we can move on, these challenges are gonna keep persisting. Um, but that's, it's not all that dire. I just wanted to just kind of paint the picture, but as big as these challenges are, I do want to say our theaters are resilient and they are adapting and they are forming systems and protocols and learning and becoming experts and becoming public health experts and building procedures and just getting better and better at handling COVID-19. So it, it, we're getting the hang of it, um, but we can't talk about uh, adaptation and pandemic recovery without also considering equity and diversity as part of the equation, right? Uh, if, if our most robust and financially stable companies and the most privileged of individual artists among us are facing such enormous challenges during this time, just imagine what our smallest companies and most vulnerable communities and individual artists are facing, right? Some of our companies, they didn't just shut their doors temporarily. They've closed permanently. And some of our artists, some of our community members, some of my friends, neighbors, they've started new careers in entirely other sectors, leaving the arts or leaving the Bay Area region entirely because of the un unaffordability of even living here as an artist. So as we think about how we can move forward as a community and keep the arts alive in the Bay Area, we have to be thinking about our entire community, right? And that includes, and especially, our BIPOC artists, BIPOC-led companies, disabled artists, neurodivergent artists, trans and non-binary artists, any of our neighbors and friends for whom survival amidst a pandemic is that much more difficult. Um, so one very tangible thing that we can do, and some, when I start getting anxious about like, what can we do? I mean, we can support our communities artists financially. And that's what I'm glad that I'm part of the Theater Bay Area. I'm so proud of the work that this team did um, prior to me coming on. Um, Theater Bay Area Dancers Group, uh, Intramusic SF, they banded together and, and created a COVID-19 Performing Arts Worker Relief Fund, um, distributed over, I think I saw $700,000 now to performing arts workers in the Bay Area. Um, but as huge as that number is, more relief is needed. So we I just ask for the continued generosity of our community to keep um, keep this up so we can continue re-granting and supporting the arts uh, in all of its forms. Um, I just feel we need to constantly remind ourselves how essential arts, the performing arts culture is. It is not, we kept hearing essential workers, essential workers. And of course, there's a certain meaning for that in, in public health, absolutely. And I don't want to minimize that. But I, I firmly believe that we are essential workers, too, because I, I wouldn't want to live in a Bay Area that doesn't have arts and culture. Um, yeah. So with that, I know I, we're, we're short on time. So I just want to just say, let's hold fast to these values, everybody. Um, stay passionate. Um, lift up the most vulnerable in our community so we can all rise up. Um, and together, I, I really do believe we can overcome these challenges together, emerge stronger, and prevail. And prevail. <laughs> yes. And and um, I think it's important to uh, take a look at you know whether whether you're a a, music, a symphony orchestra musician, a dancer, mm -hmm. um, a contemporary dancer, a ballet dancer, a, a theater maker, a theater an artist. You know, I speak as an audience person. So I've, I've been in those various places that people have been avoiding. And I, and I try to imagine, well, we can't let it stop. As Carmo said, we have to try. We have to try to get people to be there. Um, it, it would be the same feeling no matter what your art form. When you're on that stage and you look out and see 
too many empty seats. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel as weird as I did at a couple of symphony performances that weren't well attended, you know, as I did it with, with dance performances or when there were, you know, five people in the theater, you say, hmm, but it should not stop people from going. We have to encourage, we have to say, do it, bring your money. Yes. This is a rich place. <laughs> or, or if you don't feel comfortable yourself, right, to, yeah. to like, to encourage someone else to go or to right. go online. If you're not, if you can't or aren't ready to go mm -hmm. in person yet, I told, you know, I've got a lot of family members who are immunocompromised who cannot go, right. but, but then buy a ticket for somebody who can or give a gift or see it online to keep it going. I, I agree, Sean. I think it's yeah. so vital that we not take it for granted that the ecosystem, it, it, the ecosystem needs tending and it and it needs nurturing and none of us want to be the last organization standing no and that's and not the point right that's it's yeah. so important too for our musicians and for our dancers and for those artists those actors on the stage you know they 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 spark from they thrive from seeing people in the audience they need those eyeballs you know they it's it's a real lack of it's a terrible thing for morale when you know you come onto the stage and the house is half empty uh you know it, it's just it's not good for anybody yeah. But as, as an audience person, it, it's it, the performance is just as good as if the house were full. And that's what, what the, the expectation of the audience is that it doesn't matter how many of us are, are here. We expect that you will you know, be as brilliant yep. as if there were people clambering, banging down the doors to be let in. And, uh, and and keep going. That's prevailing is a, a key word, and that's why I wanted to use this word. Um, we have a couple more minutes. Um, what do you what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Look forward. Do you look forward with optimism? You better. <laughs> um, the, the, what do you, but. One of the things about that uh, that we liked about Esapeka Solonen is that he really um, seems to think of things also from from the musician's point of view. Let's have different people. I've never seen so many people of color leading the or San Francisco Symphony as I have this year, yep. or women, yep. you know, this year. And you know what? He didn't talk about it. He didn't make a big pronouncement. I'm going to do this. He's just done it. And that's what I'm admiring and enjoying very much. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, the expansion of, you know, it's the, I think I said earlier, it's the, you know, it's the exhaustive belief. It's not, it's not that we need to be more inclusive. It's that we need to be exhaustive and, and everybody that we have on the stage. And, and, you know, the, the pandemic did give us the opportunity to really think about that, spend some time thinking about it. Um, but, you know, with, with every new music director, you get a lo lot of new blood. Um, and as you say, Esa Pekka is, is a man of few words, um, but just likes to do it. And that, for me, is, is you know, a very attractive quality. Yes, indeed. And um, there was one other thing uh, that, that struck me. OK, so we've got ticket sales. We're used to ticket sales as even though the price of the ticket runs out at intermission, as, as we're fond of saying. Tickets are like the lifeblood. What do you do? Uh, it seems to me the challenge is how tickets, subscriptions, how are those things changed, altered, replaced? What are the new means? Does it have to all be contributed? What? How can we earn? I don't know about others. We're, we're certainly finding that, you know, more people are buying single tickets. We're not getting the subscribers. It's that back. And people have more options and people are thinking more about whether they want to come out or whether they want to stay in, you know. Yeah. I think it's a call on all of us to think about how relevant our programming is for our whole communities mm -hmm. and to keep talking with our communities to hear what, what do our communities need to see on stage, to hear on stage, to experience on stage. Who do they need to be on stage? 
And I think for us at ODC, that's that's a that's a key call to action that is ongoing. But I also think um, I think we've also recognized and and are dealing with the reality of the fact that we have to reintroduce and introduce ourselves to a new San Francisco. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of new residents. We're in the Mission District, which of course is also the traditional and ancestral home of the Ramatosha Ohlone. Um, there are just a tremendous number of people who've left that neighborhood and a tremendous number of people moving into that neighborhood. And it's sort of a microcosm for what's happening in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so I think digital can be a tool for that. But I also think um, we can't rely on the idea that even if we're a 50 plus year organization, everybody knows us that we, we don't get the luxury of that kind of arrogance. That's, that's ridiculous, right? We have a whole new city in some cases who's moved in around us. And it's our job to make sure they know that they're welcome and, and to really be in constant conversation with, with our entire community. Who do we want in the hall? We better be talking to them. Mm-hmm. And as always, we're going to be thinking about generational differences as well as our Gen Z, as our youngest generation is getting older and their tastes are going to be different and their demographic makeup is different. Uh, every theater, every arts company, every music organization is going to be grappling with these questions about what is relevant to these new audiences. Um, and particularly in, in theater where it's so much, it's so um, narrative based, right? We, were, we are a storytelling medium. So what stories are we telling and whose stories are we telling and, and what what do people want to see? I think that is interesting, the subs- moving into more single tickets rather than subscriptions at this time. It totally makes sense. Um, as people don't want to commit to a, a whole season uh, when they don't know what public health is going to look like or their ability to go out is going to look like. Yeah. And there's one last thing that I've noticed from the audience perspective, and that's it. We need to get uh, I'd love the companies to encourage the audiences how to be more social. Mm-hmm. Get back to being social. Yes, you can dress up. You know, <laughs> no, no problem dressing down these days. That's for sure. But, but yeah, you know, go for it. Get dressed up. Enjoy yourself. Keep encouraging the audiences. Is is my word to get out. Love the theater. Love the the building. Love the music, and enjoy yourself in the space. So I wanted to. Uh, looks like we're running too close. We could go on for a while because I have 10 more questions, but including the one thing, what if we started putting streaming into larger theaters, like the empty movie theaters? Mm. How about seeing dance and symphony and theater in a mu- in a movie theater? The opera sector has seen some, I'm thinking the Met, the Met offerings and stuff, but that, that's what my, where my, my mind goes. Um, but why not in the other sectors as well? Um, and we've also seen pre, uh, Broadway performances on Netflix and on Disney Plus. Like there is an appetite for that. Yeah, but sometimes um, yeah. on a bigger screen. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. And, and in rural places. And rural in places. places. Yes. I think we also need to think about where did folks move. Mm. And as one who grew up in a very small town with pretty limited opportunity for arts access. I think there's something to that. We're, we're really lucky. We're right. super grateful. Yeah. We're going to start to tour again and we're going to go to Albany and we're going to go to Stockton and we're going to Reno. And, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at where are those regions where we can have meaningful conversation and reach people where they are, whether that's live or broadcast. Well, let's do it. You have to try anyway. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Um, Karma Zisman of ODC Dance, Philippa Cole of San Francisco Symphony, and Sean Fenton of Theater Bay Area for leading us in uh, some wonderful thinking at this meeting about Behold, the Arts Prevail. And indeed, they shall prevail. And uh, we invite everyone, you can tune in to this program in a few days on the Commonwealth Club website. Uh, recordings podcast section so just check it out i'm ann smith your your uh, your host co-chair for the club's member-led arts forum we are so delighted you joined us today or at any time during this commonwealth club's 119th year of enlightened discussion and with that i'll say this meeting is now adjourned 
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Before we begin, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization providing humanitarian assistance to people living in or fleeing Ukraine because of the war. Outright Action International is an organization dedicated to fighting for the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and queer people everywhere. In response to the Russian invasion, Outright established a Ukraine fund to support local partners in Ukraine and neighboring countries who are providing emergency assistance to LGBTIQ people in need of safe shelter, food, medical care, transportation for those fleeing the country, and other types of humanitarian support. Because mainstream humanitarian systems too frequently leave LGBTIQ people behind. We encourage you to learn more about how to support Outright's important work by visiting outrightinternational.org slash Ukraine. Thank you for listening.